Serious questions today about the police response to the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. The lead starts right now. Pure anguish playing out. Desperate parents describe hearing gunshots go off, pleading, pleading to rush in to save their babies as police told them to move back. Just how long was the gunman inside that classroom before law enforcement took him down? And if social media companies know your detailed shopping habits, travel plans, and more about your life than many of your friends, why can't they detect online chatter about potential school shootings that could theoretically prevent another tragedy? Plus, a disturbing new find, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians forced into brutal filtration camps in Russia. Sources say it's happening at a much larger scale than originally feared. Today should have been a day of celebration for the children of Robb Elementary School in Texas, the last day of classes before summer vacation for the second graders, third graders, and fourth graders in Uvalde, Texas. 21 families today are instead planning funeral services for 19 students and two teachers. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Amidst the grief, the heartbreak, the shock, and despair are also serious new questions today about how that 18-year-old with a rifle got inside that school and stayed for more than an hour before police entered the classroom and killed him. This afternoon, the Texas Department of Public Safety laid out this timeline. At 11.28 Tuesday morning, the shooter got into a car crash. He walked into the school at 11.40 a.m., which is 12 minutes later. Police entered the school at 11.44 a.m. and called for backup while evacuating students. But... It was not until more than an hour later, at 1.06 p.m., when officers killed the gunman. Why? Why did it take more than an hour for officers to get into the single classroom we know was the scene of all that horrific carnage caused by a single gunman? This was the Department of Public Safety's answer when pressed by journalists today, including CNN's Shimon Prokopes. You guys have said that he was barricaded. Can you explain to us how he was barricaded and why you guys cannot breach that door? So I have taken all your questions into consideration. We will be doing updates. We will be doing updates to answer those questions. answer that question now, sir. What is your name? Shimon Prokopes from Shimon. CNN. I hear you. Because we've been given a lot of bad information. So why don't you clear all of this up now and explain to us how it is that your officers who were in there for an hour, yes, rescuing people, but yet no one was able to get inside that room. Shimon, we will, we will circle back with you. We want to answer all your questions. Indeed, that's the question. Today we also saw a haunting and heartbreaking new video from outside the school during the shooting as frantic parents arrived on the scene. Some parents screaming at officers to do more, to do anything, while others had to be held back from rushing inside themselves. The Wall Street Journal talked to one parent who said that after encouraging cops to do more, in a strong words, she was put into handcuffs. She says the police tackled another parent and threw that parent to the ground. And a third parent was pepper sprayed by the police, this woman told the Journal. Another parent, Angel Garza, recounted to CNN's Anderson Cooper the devastating way that he learned that the 10-year-old he raised and considered his daughter had been killed while trying to call 911. I'm a med aide, so when I arrived on the scene, they still had kids inside. They 
started bringing the kids out and I was aiding assistance. One little girl was just, just covered in blood, head to toe. Like I thought she was injured. I asked her what was wrong. And she says she's okay. She was hysterical saying that they shot her best friend, that they killed her best friend and she's not breathing. And then she was trying to call the cops. And I asked the little girl the name and she's, <laughs> and she told me, she said Amory. That's how you learn. She was so sweet, Mr. Cooper. She was the sweetest little girl who did nothing wrong. 21 families going through that grief today. Today, families have publicly identified more of the victims of Tuesday's shooting. 10-year-old Annabelle Guadalupe Rodriguez and Jacqueline Cazales, who were cousins. 10-year-old Tess Marie Mata. 9-year-old Ellie Garcia. 10-year-old... Nevea Alyssa Bravo, 10-year-old Elijah Cruz Torres, 10-year-old Jayla Nicole Silguero, and Irma Garcia, a fourth-grade teacher. This in addition to the names that we reported yesterday, Jose Flores Jr., Isaiah Garcia, Amory Joe Garza, Xavier Lopez, Lexi Rubio, and fourth-grade teacher Eva Morales. CNN's Jason Carroll starts us off today from Uvalde with the latest developments in the investigation. Moments of agony for parents gathered at Robb Elementary School on Tuesday, anxiously awaiting beyond the police line, knowing a shooter was inside their children's school. They were breaking the windows to get the kids out the windows. So at that point, I knew the shooter was still alive. Some parents, ready to go into the building, held back by loved ones and police. Victor Luna was one of those parents. His son, who was in the fourth grade, survived. I told one of the officers myself, if they didn't want to go in there, let me borrow a gun and a vest and I'll go in there myself to handle it up. And they told me no. Another parent who heard the gunshots at the scene told the Washington Post, we don't care about us. We wanted to storm the building. We were saying, let's go, because that is how worried we were. And we wanted to get our babies out. His daughter, Jacqueline Casares, was one of the 19 students killed, along with two teachers. Chilling video shows the moment the gunman entered the elementary school through an unlocked back door holding a rifle. 1140. He walks into the west side of Robb Elementary. According to reports, video we have obtained from outside, inside, and again, we're still combing through that. So bear with us. Multiple rounds, numerous rounds are discharged in the school. Troubling questions emerging as authorities investigate how the shooter could navigate through the school and why no armed resource officer was on site. The Uvalde School District had a safety plan in place, listing 21 measures for ensuring school safety, including a police force and physical security measures like fencing and a buzz-in-door system. From the grandmother's house to the bar ditch to the school, into the school, he was not confronted by anybody to clear the record on that. 
Authorities also investigating how the gunman was able to barricade himself inside the classroom for up to an hour before law enforcement gained access to the room by force, killing the shooter. Approximately an hour later, U.S. Border Patrol tactical teams arrive. They make entry, shoot and kill the suspect. And Jake, while there are still so many questions we do not have answers to, we now do have more clarity as to what happened in those moments right after the gunman crashed his car. That was at 11.28 a.m., according to the Department of Public Safety. A few moments after that, apparently, he sees two witnesses at a funeral home. He fires towards them, then continues walking towards the school. He then jumps a fence firing at the school, arrives at that back door at the school at 11.40 a.m. And at that point, according again to the Department of Public Safety, quote, discharges his weapon numerous times. But again, this is going to be little comfort to some of the parents that we spoke to, including Victor Lunar, who was out here, Jake, uh, begging these officials to move in sooner. Again, his fourth grader, his son survived, but so many others did not. Jake. All right. Jason Carroll in Uvalde, Texas, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss uh, Eduardo Zamora. He's part of the Uvalde City Council. Um, Councilman, I understand your, your nieces and nephews uh, actually attend Robb Elementary School, and you went there yourself as a child. How are you and your family and the community holding up today? Uh, they're, they're hugging out pretty good. I mean, as best as we can. And that is correct. I do have two nieces that go to that school. And uh, correct, again, I was on the scene about maybe 20, 22 minutes after it began. I got the text message around uh, 11.35 saying that there was a shooter at the school. I closed my office and drove over here real quick. And I mean, as soon as I got here, there was a lot of police officers and a lot of people. And it was, it was just uh, very, very hectic. And what I witnessed was there was a lot of police officers running in and out of the building on the uh, east side of the building. Uh, when I went towards the uh, west side of the building, I could see there was more officers on the other side. And uh, it, was, it, was just, it was just a hectic scene. The Department of Public Safety in Texas says it was more than an hour between when officers first entered the school at about 1145 and when the gunman was killed at about 104. Have you gotten any explanation as to why it took so long for them to go into that classroom and take out the shooter? No, uh, there's no explanation onto that, but while I was here, there was no, I didn't hear no gunfire, so I don't know where they're coming with that, that uh, scene, but we were here, uh, myself, the mayor, and we were trying to you know, help as, as many first responders and I was outside mainly trying to help uh, control the parents, you know, the people that are here. Most of these uh, family members that were out here, I, I grew up with them. They know me. And I think when they saw me, they were like, okay, you know, somebody's here. And I, they, they felt that we felt uh, that it calmed down the people, you know, when I was here and I was trying to help uh, police officers, uh, first responders. I know volunteer firemen were out here. We were trying to control the uh, Border Patrol, too, was here. And we were trying to control the people from going in. And all I could see was the uh, police and Border Patrol and 
just going in and out of that mm -hmm. building. DPS, of course, was here too. I want to get and, your. Uh, as far as what happened inside, what happened inside is I, until we get the end of the report, we'll we'll know for definite. I want to get your reaction to an exchange between a reporter and Lieutenant Christopher Olivares of the Texas Department of Public Safety. Take a listen. She uh, asked, um, we've heard that some law enforcement officers actually went into school to get their kids out. Can you talk about that? To which the spokesman, the police spokesman responded, right. So what we do know, Vanessa, right now, that there was some police officers, families trying to get their children out of school because it was an active shooter situation right now. It's a terrible situation right now. What do you know about this? Were police officers going inside the school to rescue their own children? No, I, I, that's the first time I heard of that. And like I said, that, that is hopefully will come out of the investigation. And I, as far as I know, I've never heard that before. I will check with my police chief and, and my, uh, chair, my uh, the chair from Uvalde County and see if that is correct. That, that's the first time I heard of it. Okay. But when I got here, it was, it, it, I know that they were evacuating a lot of people and that when they started evacuating the children, and that's when the crowd started getting out of control because they were running towards their, their loved ones, you know, and we were trying to get them as fast as we can into a safe, secure location. And we were trying to control the parents. And as far as other ones coming in by themselves, trying to get there, uh, that's the news on me. We'll find out on that. Okay. Uvalde City Councilman Everardo Zamora, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it, sir. In our politics lead moments ago, we learned that President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will travel to Uvalde on Sunday. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. And Caitlin, what, what is the White House saying about this trip? Yeah, Jake, they've just confirmed that on Sunday, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will be going to Uvalde to grieve with these 21 families who have lost so much and really Jake, to grieve with the entire community. And it's the second scene of a mass shooting that the president will have visited in just a matter of days, because it was just nine days ago that he went to Buffalo to meet with those families who had lost victims in that shooting. And now he'll be going to another one, of course, to talk to these families as well, Jake. And we should note that that comes as all eyes here in Washington are also focused on whether or not there is going to be the first confirmed director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms in seven years. That is the ATF that the president has nominated his second nominee after they have to withdraw his first nominee back in the fall because he could not get enough support even from Democrats to get confirmed, Jake. And it's notable because that is really one of the only unilateral moves that the president can take when it comes to being in charge of the Firearm Regulatory Committee, uh, this agency that they would be running. And so we did see today Senator Angus King say that he is going to vote for Steve Dettelbach. That is notable, Jake, because he was the one who helped sink the previous nominee, David Chipman. Of course, Jake, all of that comes as there are still major questions about whether or not any progress is going going to be made when it comes to gun control legislation on Capitol Hill. But the White House is eagerly hoping that Steve Dottobach can get confirmed to run the ATF, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Coming up next, how social media plays a part in these tragedies. Is there anything that these tech companies can do to flag alarming posts from soon-to-be gunmen? Plus, where Congress stands on all of this, the legislation being floated on Capitol Hill right now. Thank, uh, stay with us. In our tech lead, minutes before the start of Tuesday's massacre in Uvalde, Texas Governor Greg Abbott says that the gunman used Facebook to send a series of chilling messages to a person he met online, describing how he just shot his grandmother and was going to shoot up an elementary school. A Facebook spokesperson says that those were private messages that were only discovered after the tragedy occurred. CNN's Brian Fung joins me. Joins me now. Brian, 
Just a basic question. How is it that Facebook, Instagram, Twitter seem to know every single thing about me? What vacation spots I want to go to, that I'm in the market for new socks, but they cannot figure out a way to assess when somebody might be planning and typing about shooting up a school. Well, Jake, uh, the short answer is that uh, you know, these platforms generally don't make a habit of reading um, your, the content of your messages on a proactive basis. And uh, historically, they've said you know, there are privacy reasons why they don't do that. Uh, and in fact, platforms like Facebook uh, and, and others have been moving in the direction of expanding encryption so that not even they can read the content of your messages. Only you and your recipient can. And uh, this really reflects something broader that's going on in social media where more social media usage is shifting um, to more private and ephemeral, um, ephemeral services where things like live video or disappearing messages have really become much more popular than in the past. And so, you know, the question is, if you can't read or access the messages, uh, what else could you look to? And, you know, could you look at uh, search history, for example, or, you know, um, you know, what a person, what websites a person visits? Well, then you start getting into a really thorny problem of context, right? Because uh, how do you determine um, what the, dif- the difference is between someone who is simply looking at um, terrorist content, maybe as a, an academic uh, research exercise, as opposed to someone who is being actively radicalized. Um, and that is really the challenge here uh, for, for things like artificial intelligence. Um, and researchers say that while AI has come a long way in being able to proactively root out some of this stuff, um, it's still really not uh, where it needs to be, and there's a lot more work to be done. Okay, Brian Fung, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss Stephen Kotowski. He's the founder of Reload.com. He's a gun safety instructor. He knows a lot about firearms. And I wanted to have you come and just talk about what might work, what could work uh, that could also pass. Um, So right now, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he told Texas Senator John Cornyn to work to find a bipartisan solution, to work with Democrats Um, Democrats have talked about a couple things, a national red flag law to alert people when somebody is acting in a way that might be uh, at risk uh, to himself or to others, uh, and to uh, have a judge step in and say, let's let's make sure this person can't buy any guns for a short amount of time, or expanding background checks. Um, You've been reporting on firearms for a long time. You're a supporter of the Second Amendment. What do you think might work? You know, I don't think there's a single switch that you can flip that's going to solve the issue, right? I mean, uh, certainly that's something that, you know, you do hear from politicians who talk about this. Uh, but I think it's absolutely true. There's, there's always going to be some example of a shooting where whatever you're trying to apply to prevent it wouldn't have worked. And certainly in this case, uh, in Texas, it's difficult to, to find one single policy solution that would have prevented this killing. Obviously, you could imagine that hardening schools, uh, as some Republicans have suggested, could have helped in this situation, given what we're now learning about right. um, what actually occurred. Uh, you, could, uh, you could argue that uh, restricting AR-15s by age, which is something that Florida did after uh, Parkland... Yeah, you have to be 21 in Wyoming to get a handgun, even. Um, well, 21 to, own a hand, to buy a handgun anywhere in the country under federal law, but but 18 for a more dangerous weapon seems that doesn't make sense. Well, you know, there, there's a there's a, certainly a dichotomy in our in our laws over uh, age restrictions for firearms purchases because handguns generally are used far more often in 
uh, in crimes than, than long guns. That's traditionally been why they've been scrutinized more severely. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, like I said, after Parkland, they did pass an age restriction on certain types of rifles like the AR-15 and other. In Florida. Similar, in Florida. So it's possible that Texas could go that route. Uh, whether that would have prevented the shooting is, is another question. Of course, he did use an AR-15, but uh, you, you could just as easily kill a lot of people with another type of right. firearm, which we've seen, of course, repeatedly. Handguns are actually the most common uh, firearms used in mass shootings uh, of this, this scale for more people killed. What about a, a red flag law? Um, right. Because that's something, obviously, in Buffalo, there were the shooter... Uh, had said had had written something that alarmed the teachers. They told police, uh, and yet still no one uh, alerted a judge um, to alert the red flag law. And he also was able to buy uh, guns legally. Right, and, and that sort of example shows you why there's no single policy that's going to solve this issue just by flipping a switch. Like you know, a lot of people will try to on either side will try to tell you if you just did red flag laws, if we just did an assault weapons ban, or we just uh, had armed teachers that would fix this problem. And it's not, I, I don't think it's true. Or, uh, as far as red flag laws, the, the possibility for uh, passing them in Texas or at the state level uh, or at the federal level, I mean, there, there, I think there's more uh, chance of that happening than something like an assault weapons ban, uh, you know, a total ban on sales. But uh, even still, there are a lot of concerns with red flag laws over the due process uh, protections, uh, over the fact that all they really do is restrict your access to firearms and right. don't really uh, perhaps help you in, in other ways that if you're a danger to yourself or others, you, you would need. The number of um, uh, And ma- people don't always yeah. uh, use them, like you said, in Buffalo. They, they have a red flag law. And I think a lot of people don't know about it, though, right. also. It's just one of the problems. Lastly, um, the number of mass shootings has went, went up 52% from 2020 to 2021. Uh, obviously, COVID maybe played some role in terms of people staying indoors or whatever. But mm-hmm. the number, I mean, active shooter incidents, if you look at the chart right there, I mean, they're going up. Um, is there any theory as to why that is? I mean, I think that's one of the one of the big questions is why have we seen an increase in these types of uh, attempts at, at mass shootings? Active shooter situations are, are not necessarily uh, successful in, in carrying right. out an attack like we saw in Texas, but but there are people that the FBI has identified as attempting to do something of that nature, a public uh, mass shooting. But uh, and and yeah, they have increased. Obviously, I think uh, the the year over year numbers are skewed by. COVID, there were lockdowns. And sure. We didn't have a lot of mass shootings in 2020 either, uh, where four or more people were killed. Uh, so th- that that's obviously not a solution to the problem. Right. Just constant lockdowns. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah. but uh, there, there does seem to be a long-term trend, and it's hard to identify exactly what's causing that. Um, you know, there, there, there are commonalities between a lot of these shooters in that they're young men who have a history of uh, family issues or domestic violence that uh, they've got, uh, you know, they're troubled people and they often leave warning signs before yeah. something happens, although it's much easier to see a collection of warning signs in some of these cases In retrospect, of course, yeah. No, so Steve, it's not an easy... It's not easy, it isn't, but the conversation's important and we appreciate your being here, Stephen Dukatowski, uh, who is with, give everybody the name of your uh, website. The Reload, yes, the Reload.com. The Reload. Super Serious Firearms Journalist. Yes, and I am a subscriber. And thank you so much, Stephen, appreciate it. How young people nationwide are once again taking action to respond to this tragedy, that's next. 
And our politics lead a call to action after the horrific massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Students across the United States are participating in walkouts today organized by the group Students Demand Action. That group advocates for universal background checks and other gun safety measures. This comes amid signs of a renewed push on Capitol Hill for a bipartisan solution to address gun violence. Joining us now is Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass of California. She's on the House Judiciary Committee. She's also a candidate for mayor of Los Angeles. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. So Congress has continually failed uh, to pass anything meaningful in the wake of mass shootings. Republicans have largely been the obstruction, although not only Republicans. Some Democrats have been as well. Senators uh, Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, and John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, are set to meet to try to find some sort of bipartisan solution. Um, what, what do you think? Do you think that there is actual possibility for some action? Well, you know what? I just don't understand how many babies need to die before the Senate is willing to act. So I certainly hope that this will be a sincere effort, because what usually happens after these tragedies, and you know this very well, is that our Republican colleagues will act like they're very concerned. They usually point to mental health, but then provide absolutely no resources for mental health. But mental health becomes an excuse. We have to deal with guns in this country. And so I'm hoping that this time will be sincere. But I do have to tell you, I've seen this a number of times before, as have you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you talk about that mental health, because one of the things that seems to be clear in a lot of these mass shooting events, whether uh, Uvalde or in Buffalo, or you go back to the horrific shooting of Republicans uh, playing baseball uh, in 2017, is that the shooter, in all cases, uh, was troubled. And people knew that that individual was troubled. Sometimes uh, had even had run-ins with police one way or the other. It it does seem possible that some sort of red flag law uh, on a national basis and, and state by state could do something. I mean, it wouldn't stop everything, but it could do something. Right. Well, but remember now, I think it was either last year, well, a couple of years ago, the Republicans blocked legislation to prohibit people on the no-fly list from having guns. They blocked legislation from prohibiting people with serious mental illness from having guns. So it's quite contradictory. But if they really believed it, then why wouldn't they put resources for a mental health system in this country? And it is very, very poor, the system we have now. You know, in Los Angeles, we do have red flag laws, and and we have very strong gun laws here, but we still have an issue. We actually need to enforce the red flag law. People need to understand it and use it much more, even in Los Angeles. Texas Governor Abbott says um, gun control laws don't work. At a press conference yesterday, he said, quote, people who think maybe we can implement tough gun laws and we can solve it. Chicago, New York and L.A. disprove that thesis. You're running to be mayor of L.A. How do you respond? Well, I mean, I don't think it does at all. But what it does show is that we need national laws. I mean, one of the big problems in Illinois, as you know, is that the guns that come into Chicago are coming in from out of state. And we have a problem here, too. Our problem is with ghost guns now. That's a whole new animal that we have to figure out how to deal with. But it just goes to show you, until we deal with it nationally, you are going to have places like California with strong gun laws, but still have these issues because people can bring them in from other places or you can get them over the Internet. Right. Ghost guns, of course, are made at home, kind of like build in a kit kind of guns. I want to ask you, because yesterday President Biden signed this executive order 
modeled after the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which you authored and which failed to pass uh, in Congress. You were at the White House ceremony. It took place on the two-year anniversary of the tragic death of George Floyd. How will these orders prevent others from dying, from being killed the way that George Floyd was killed? Well, I I think it was a step in the right direction, but ultimately we do need to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. But when we did not succeed in passing it out of the Senate, because you know it passed out of the House twice, Senator Booker and I asked the White House to intervene and to do an executive order. So I think it sends a clear message. It applies to the federal uh, law enforcement. And sometimes what happens is, is that when you have one level of government respond, then other levels of government react uh, as well. So we're hoping that it'll be a catalyst for uh, future efforts on a local level. All right, Democratic Congresswoman and mayoral candidate Karen Bass, thanks so much. Good to see you. Thank you. Same here. Next to Ukraine, where a horrific war is still playing out, reports of Russian filtration camps turning out to be much worse than first believed. Stay with us. And our worldly new intelligence shows the scale of Russia's sinister approach to depopulating Ukraine as Putin's army systematically forces Ukrainians out of their homes and into what are called filtration camps, processing them in places where Ukrainians used to shop for groceries, such as the one you see here, which appears now to be full of Russian military. CNN's Katie Bo Lillis joins us now with her new reporting. Katie Bo, exactly how many Ukrainians have gone through these camps and where are they being sent? Yeah, Jake, it's really the numbers that are that are staggering here. U.S. officials have said publicly that at least tens of thousands of Ukrainians are being sent through these so-called filtration camps and then sent into Russia. Tens of um, thousands. I, Originally, we thought hundreds, maybe. I Well, so now we understand from talking to, to four uh, officials who are familiar with Western intelligence that they do believe that the numbers are more likely in the hundreds of thousands, if not a million people, which, of course, is a is a massive number. And it's important to understand here, Jake, that what Russia is doing, according to our sources, is seeking to depopulate eastern Ukraine of sort of politically inconvenient Ukrainians, you know, nationalists, people who have a connection to the Ukrainian military or the Ukrainian government. Uh, So these are camps that are being run by Russian intelligence. They're being run by the FSB. Um, And we have from our sources and also from eyewitnesses, credible uh, reports of some some brutal interrogations, um, possibly even extending up to what we would consider torture um, or even summary executions. Uh, and then for those Ukrainians that, that survive this process, uh, many are then being sent into Russia. And then from there, many are being rehomed in cities and towns in economically depressed areas, really all over Russia, um, including even some that are as far away as 10,000 miles away from the Ukrainian border. We know that that some Ukrainians have been sent to a place called Sakhalin Island, which is literally in the Pacific, 10,000 miles away from the border. How long are Ukrainians stuck in these filtration camps before they're then sent to the proverbial Siberia? Yeah, so it's it's on average about three weeks, but the experience for a lot of these Ukrainians varies, right? Some of them are are um, detained in these camps that appear sort of indefinitely. They're they're able to uh, they're able to speak on a cell phone to loved ones, but these cell phones um, are are being sort of plugged into uh, a Russian computer that is they they believe is then sort of capturing their data. So they have to sort of be careful about about what they are saying. And then there are some Ukrainians that, of course. Are, are sort of able to clear this process, are then, are then sent, into, sent into Russia. And then when they're sent to these sort of um, town cities all over, the, all over the country, some of them are, are given a little bit of support, right? They might get 
like 150 bucks uh, in rubles. They might get a Russian SIM card, possibly some housing. But experiences vary. Some of them are are literally given nothing, uh, effectively dropped off in a in a town in the middle of nowhere in in Russia, and told, "Okay, you live here. You know, make a living now." It's so crazy. Katie Bowillis, what a horrible story. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Ukrainians are also under Russian control in Ukraine. What that life is like right now. That's coming up. Stay with us. And we're back with more on our world lead. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has a blistering message for former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger after Kissinger said Ukraine should concede land to Russia to stop the war. Zelensky comparing his suggestion to the appeasement of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. CNN's Melissa Bell takes us to some of the regions Kissinger was talking about, destroyed beyond recognition, and where, quote, the smell of death, unquote, is everywhere. After three months of war, with Azovstal, that symbol of Ukrainian resistance in ruins, Mariupol is a city of ghosts. These exclusive pictures obtained by CNN show the dead only now being retrieved from the rubble. At least 22,000 people are now believed to have died, according to the city mayor's office, now working in exile. It's absolutely, absolutely dark inside the city. Just lights by Russian troops, you know, by, by, by Russian patrols, and everywhere is smell of death. And really, a smell of the fire smell of uh, the smoke and smell of the death. It, it's Mariupol reality. Very different to what's now being transmitted inside Mariupol. Russian TV channels, to go with the Russian passports residents here have already been issued with. 20-year-old Nicole is one of the lucky ones. She fled Mariupol with her five-year-old nephew in early April. It took them five days to get to Ukrainian-held land on foot. She won't give their full names because her parents are still trying to get out. As she starts to tell us her story, Kirill, who had to be silent, she says, for the five days it took them to flee, says he wants to speak. He says it was very scary getting out, showing us how he had to hide his head from the shelling. His message now... I want everyone to stay alive, he says. To the west of Mariupol, the city of Kherson. The pictures now emerging, secretly filmed lines of residents waiting to buy oil and medicine. Tales of hardship shared also by those who fled the city since it fell to Russian forces on March 2nd. Those still inside, too scared to be identified. One man telling CNN of a protest four days ago at the main train station. When a Ukrainian flag was raised, he says, anyone within a mile radius was arrested. In Mariupol, too, the images speak of the new reality of what lies beyond the reach of the free press, Russian-controlled Ukraine. I think, Jake, because of the brutality of what's happened over the course of the last three months, it's very easy to forget that this war actually goes back to 2014. The Ukrainian reach for independence goes back to the first part of the 20th century. But because they've seen what happened in Crimea, because they've seen what happened in Donbass, they better understand than us what is now happening in Mariupol and in Kherson. And in the words of the Polish president, who was visiting just a few days ago, 
Ukraine, or at least what is now on this side of that front line, is actually now the face of the free world. Jake. Melissa Bell in Kiev for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, the changes just announced to the NRA's big convention tomorrow, a convention that's happening in Texas, the same state currently reeling from this week's mass shooting. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Spotlight on the NRA. It's set to open its annual convention tomorrow morning in the same state as the Uvalde school shooting. Texas's governor and one of the state's U.S. senators are still slated to speak there as parents are also elsewhere in the state preparing to bury their children. Plus, parents in agony as they are forced to wait outside the building, hearing the gunmen inside with their kids, the growing questions about the police response to the Uvalde school shooting. But We begin today with a look at the children and teachers gunned down. The bodies of 19 of the 21 shooting victims have been released to their families and to funeral homes. Now, instead of celebrating the end of the school year and the beginning of the summer, the parents of 9- and 10-year-olds are preparing to bury their babies. CNN's Lucy Kafanov is outside the hospital and in San Antonio, where some kids are still fighting for their lives inside. We're learning more about the children who did not come home. Look at their faces. Fourth grader Jackie Cesares just had her first baptism and first communion. Just full of love and full of life. And she would do anything for anybody. Nine-year-old Ellie Garcia was just a week from her 10th birthday. Sweetest girl you've ever, ever had the chance to meet. Ten-year-old Nevea Bravo, her first name spelled backwards, is heaven. Angels now to their families, 19 children and two teachers. This is the pain of their loss. How do you look at this girl and shoot her? <laughs> oh, my baby. How do you shoot my baby? Angel Garza, who raised Amory Joe Garza, wants you to know that she tried to call 911 to save her classmates and teachers. She was the sweetest little girl who did nothing wrong. She listened to her mom and dad. She always brushed her teeth. She did. She was creative. She made things for us. She never got in trouble in school. Lexi Rubio loved sports, and at just 10 years old, she dreamed of traveling the world. She wanted to go to Australia. She wanted to go to Australia. She wanted to go to law school. Law school. Yeah, St. Mary's, because that's where I go. Jackie Cesaris's father, Jacinto, called her a firecracker, posting his range of emotion. First, at the freaking cowardly way his daughter was killed, it hurts to our souls. Then, a note to his daughter, be in peace with the rest of the angels, sweetheart. Baby girl, we all love you with all our hearts. At a community vigil last night in Uvalde, the dead are mourned. They include teacher Irma Garcia, who was in her fifth year of teaching alongside Eva Morales. Both died, their families say, shielding students from gunfire. Not lost here, the children still being treated in the hospital. A pediatric trauma director describes them as critical but stable, wishing there were more lives she could save. I think that's what hit us um, the most, not of the patients that we did receive, and we, were, we, are, we are honored uh, to treat them, but the patients that we did not receive. That is the most challenging aspect of our job right now. The Flores family was among those who rushed to hospitals in search of their children. It was there that Jose Flores Sr. lived the moment that would befall 21 families in this close-knit community. So I didn't get to hold him no more. I didn't. 
can't get to see him. And Jake, so much grief, loss, and frankly, trauma for everyone involved, those who lost their lives, the families, and those who are recovering in the hospital. Yesterday, we told you four patients uh, remain here at University Health. We know one of them now from authorities is 66-year-old Celia, the gunman's grandmother who was shot in the face. She remains in serious condition. And those three little girls are still being treated. We know now large, they're, they're being descri described as destructive wounds, large areas of their body missing, large t areas of tissue missing from the body. I know that sounds graphic, but that is the reality that the trauma surgeons at University Health are dealing with, that these families are dealing with, and that these little girls will be dealing with as they recover, not just from their physical scars, but the emotional ones as well. Jake. Lucy Kavanaugh in San Antonio. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. New video shows parents yelling. Sorry. New video shows parents yelling, screaming at law enforcement officers, begging for them to do something, anything, while the gunman was inside the elementary school in Uvalde on Tuesday. I want to play some of the video for you. Just a warning. It is difficult to watch. CNN's Ed Levanderas in Uvalde, where investigators are trying to pin down exactly what played out at the school. Two days after the mass shooting at Robb Elementary, the story of what happened when the gunman arrived on the campus has fundamentally changed. There's a lot of possibilities. I don't have enough information to answer that question just yet. The new details revealed in a bewildering press conference with the Texas Department of Public Safety. Can you explain to us how he was barricaded? I hear you. Because we've been given a lot of bad information, so why don't you clear all of this up? As parents arrived at the scene of the shooting at Robb Elementary. Like shooting, shooting. The brother was like hitting the dirt on the floor. And just, the, like, bu why? the bullets were hitting close bullets from where? I guess, he was, was um, I guess he was coming from the, from the school this way. They were frustrated police wouldn't let them help save their children despite safety procedures that keep people away from an active crime scene. Dads were screaming like, give me the vest, I'll go inside. People were just, they wanted to get inside and get their kids. According to investigators, the gunman walked in unobstructed and was inside the school for almost an hour before police forced their way into a classroom and killed him. He went in at 1140. He walks and I'm going to approximate 20 feet, 30 feet, he makes a right. He walks into the hallway, he makes a right, walks another 20 feet, turns left into a schoolroom, into a classroom that has doors open in the middle. We estimate anywhere from 40 minutes to an hour. So we're also trying to establish also as far as how far were those officers inside the school? There was a standoff for close to half an hour after he fired on students and teachers at the school, according to Congressman Tony Gonzalez, who was briefed on the timeline. As that gunman entered the schoolway, entered that hallway of the school, those police officers also followed right behind that shooter. At that point, there was gunfire exchanged. They were frustrated police wouldn't let them help save their children despite safety procedures that keep people away from an active crime scene. In all, more than 100 federal officers responded to the shooting, in addition to local police. For one young third grader hiding from the gunman, 
it seemed like even more. All we saw were thousands of police and bar patrol coming into the cafeteria. And we were all hiding behind the stage in the cafeteria when it happened. The Uvalde School District did have a safety plan with a system in place to provide a safe and secure environment. 21 measures, including a locked door policy. We're still trying to establish if there was any type of locking mechanisms on the doorway from the inside of the classroom because the gunman was able to barricade himself. The timeline of the massacre begins at 1121 Tuesday morning. According to text messages, Ramos told a friend he shot his grandmother and was heading to an elementary school. At 1128, he is close to the school. He walks around, he sees two witnesses at the funeral home across the street from where he wrecked. He engages and fires towards them. Authorities say he climbed a fence, giving few details, but revising earlier reports that he engaged with a school resource officer as he entered the campus. At 1140, they say he was able to enter the school through an unlocked back door. He walked in unrestructed initially. He was not confronted by anybody to clear the record on that. And Jake, what is really frustrating families here in Uvalde is just the dramatically changing storylines of what investigators are saying at this point. Many people just clearly want answers. And the still outstanding question right now is from 1144 on Tuesday morning to 1244 when the ordeal inside the school ended, what exactly was happening during that time? What were officers doing? At one point, DPS officials said today that they were bringing in uh, SWAT team members, tactical teams, and negotiators. Questions like, why were they trying to negotiate uh, with an active shooter? Jake? Lots of questions. Ed Lavendera, thanks so much. Joining us now, Phil Mudd. He's a former CIA analyst and is a CNN counterterrorism analyst and retired Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, who served for the L.A. Police Department. Phil, let me start with you. I want to run through what we know of the day. 1128, the gunman crashes his car. 11.40 a.m., the gunman gets into the school. 11.44 a.m., law enforcement, quote, make entry. They go into the school, too. Now, after that, there's more than an hour gap where officers say they were calling for backup. They were evacuating other kids. At 1.06 p.m., the attack is reported to be over. So 90 minutes from the start of the attack until the shooter is dead. Uh, and it doesn't seem as though they breached the classroom where the shooter was with these kids until the very end. Uh, does this sound normal to you? It sounds like a long period of time. Look, one of the questions I'd have is whether the reports of people who went in there, the SWAT team members, are consistent. One of the reasons we might not be getting good answers on why it took so long is classic. That is, there will be inconsistencies among unreliable witnesses. But the the, the side-by-side question, Jake, that we haven't talked about is you've got that time frame, that time gap. I want to know what the training was for responding to active shooter and whether the actions of the individuals who went in did what they were required to do under training or else whether that gap was a result of them not applying their training. So there's the gap and whether that gap corresponds to what they've been told to do in training exercises. Jake, we just don't know the answer to that yet. And Sergeant, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but after Columbine, police protocol changed. It used to be the tradition that if there was an active shooter, police would, would wait it out, try to negotiate, et cetera. But after Columbine, the guidance changed and police were supposed to just go in, go in and stop the shooter. That does not appear to be what happened here. Am I, tell me if I'm wrong here. 
Well, listen, I, I think part of the problem is, is that we assume when we talk about police departments that we're talking about large agencies. And we understand now that training is not uniform, it's not standardized. And I've heard reports that this is a very small department in Uvalde. I, I think six officers, and that includes the police chief and a couple of detectives. And so Lord only knows what kind of training they may have had. And so note to self-police departments going forward. While you may not have had a murder in your town or you may have never dealt with an active shooter, you absolutely need to be proactive in your training and make sure that your officers know how to respond. It sounds like they were relying on the response and assistance of nearby agencies to do this very delicate tactical work that required uh, as a result of this shooting. Phil, what questions do you still have about this investigation? Obviously, the shooting was just two days ago. What, what more are you wondering about that we haven't found out in terms of the actual shooter? Boy, there, there's a lot that people aren't talking about that occurs to me after all the cases I watched. Think of a human being, an individual at the, in the middle of a spider web. That spider web is what we, we used to call in the business a pattern of life. That pattern of life in this case includes where there's signs to the family. I've heard very little about what the family has, has said to investigators and what they think. We've heard more about friends. Let me give you another one. What his search patterns were on the internet and whether those search patterns changed over time. We don't know that. Let me give you a big one that's unanswered. This individual on his 18th birthday, this individual who evidently was not doing well in school and dropped out of a Wendy's, had enough money to buy two weapons and to buy a whole boatload of ammunition. Who gave him the money? What was the intent behind providing that money? And did that person or persons know anything about what he was going to do with that money? Boy, there's a lot of stuff building pattern of life, that web of life around this the, the shooter that we don't know yet, Jake. Sergeant, the gunman had no prior criminal history, no known mental health history. He just turned 18. He legally bought his two AR-15 style rifles. His grandfather said he didn't know that he had guns. Would a red flag law, would a stricter background check have stopped this? Well, if, if that information was known, and while the grandfather may not have known, I, I would imagine the grandmother who got shot in the face by this uh, individual <laughs> knows that he has some issues with anger management. Where are the parents in all of this? And while, uh, you know, there is no record of criminality and, and, and no reports of mental illness, I don't think that's a factor. I can imagine that there are certainly plenty of instances of him being incorrigible him not having any respect for authority. He dropped out of school. And so somewhere there needs to be a list now made of folks like that who don't rise to the level of criminality or insanity, but certainly would give background investigators pause before they just give them two ARs and a boatload of ammunition to go out to the public. Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, Phil Mudd, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. A few hundred miles away from the massacre in Uvalde, the NRA convention is set to start tomorrow with some high-profile politicians in attendance. Plus? Am I supposed to just leave all the, the flags at half-mask? The New York governor will join us, talking about her plan for combating gun violence. And a live look at the 21 wooden crosses now standing outside Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, representing the 21 lives cut short by that gunman. Stay with us. Topping our politics lead in New York, Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul is proposing a slew of new actions to affect the state's gun laws, including raising the legal age to purchase a firearm from 18 to 21. Governor Hochul is also proposing state police do daily check-ins at schools until the end of the school year. The governor says it's time to harness the anger and pain 
and act. I'm asking myself as governor, am I supposed to just leave all the, the flags at half mask? They're still at half mask from Buffalo. And New York Governor Kathy Hochul, a Democrat, joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Governor. So let me ask you about the fact that New York State has a red flag law on the books, but it woefully failed uh, to be used to stop the Buffalo shooter before his deadly rampage. Uh, The school, his family, law enforcement, mental health clinicians, no one escalated their concerns about this young man by going to a court, even though there were concerns. He had written about a murder-homicide. There's a report that he decapitated the family cat. What needs to change? I mean, you had that law. It's obviously not your fault, but the the, the law was there. It could have been used, and yet it wasn't. Jake, you're absolutely right. You know, we're watching the stories of parents who are in disbelief, they're in shock, and his parents were just so stunned along with them that this could happen to little 10-year-olds, but it also happened in Buffalo to my neighbors. We're still burying people from the Buffalo massacre that happened 10 minutes from where I live. Yes, we are examining every element of the investigation. The federal government has taken over the investigation to find out what happened, why the red law, red flag law wasn't activated in this case because there was evidence that surfaced later. So that is a shortcoming. But also, this individual would not have been able to have this mass execution if he wasn't able to get his hands on high-capacity magazine cartridges literally across the border in Pennsylvania from where he lives. So we also have to focus on what's going on nationally. We can pass all the laws we want to protect people, and we also have to deal with the social media influence. That's another whole topic that we're leaning hard into. But but there have been a failure at a number of levels, but one of the failures is the inability of Congress to give us national laws that we can use so other states are not thwarting our hard efforts in the state of New York to protect New Yorkers. So it, there was a, a failure on many levels, Jake. It's not, a, it's not acceptable. New York State already has a minimum age requirement of 21 to have a handgun. In fact, I think that's, that's a national uh, regulation. You have to be 21 to have a handgun. You want to raise 20, uh, the age for any purchase of any gun to 21. Do you think you can pass that kind of law for long guns, for AR-15s, and do you think it will survive court challenges? Right now we're looking at the AR-15. That is the same weapon that was used, purchased by an 18-year-old in New York and in Texas. So when you think about the fact that an 18-year-old can go out on their birthday and buy an assault weapon that should be used on battlefields, and they can't even buy a beer at the corner bar, something's wrong with our system. That age between 18 and 21, as we're seeing from these last two cases, seems to be a time when common sense would dictate that we have laws that say you cannot buy a weapon. And when we do buy that weapon, I want there to be not just the ability to purchase this category of weapons, and we're talking about the semi-automatics, we're talking about the AR-15s, also, where's the background check? There should be national background checks. We do background checks in New York. I want to make sure they're available. Background checks are being executed in these cases as well. Because a background check needs to go deep. It has to be, have an opportunity to talk to your neighbors, 
have an FBI background check, mental health examination, and now we need to be really focused on social media, where people often will telegraph their intent, but it's not being captured. And that's a conversation we need to have with the social media platforms that are allowing these posts to continue, whether it's the manifesto that was used in Buffalo, whether it's the conversations that the shooter just news is just coming out about conversations he has had with different people. So it's a multifaceted crisis, a problem, but we have to hit it at all different levels. All right, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Coming up, the NRA is going ahead with its convention tomorrow in the same state where the school massacre happened, but they are banning firearms when one particular guest speaks. Stay with us. The National Rifle Association begins its annual convention in Houston tomorrow, just days after 19 children and two teachers were murdered with guns at an elementary school in the same state. Former President Donald Trump, Republican Governor Greg Abbott, and Senator Ted Cruz are all expected to speak, despite criticism from some quarters that meeting in Texas right now is especially inappropriate. Due to safety concerns with the former president in attendance, the Secret Service will not let attendees bring firearms inside. As CNN's Sunland Sarfati reports, this is not the first time the NRA has pushed ahead with a convention in the same state as a recent school massacre. With all due respect, um, you should not come. The NRA defiantly unyielding. It would be respectful for, for the families uh, who are planning funerals for their children for them not to come. Releasing a statement calling the shooting evil, but pushing ahead to kick off their annual conference in Houston tomorrow, only three days and 300 miles from the site of the mass shooting in Uvalde. I just think it's shameful and it's shameful for any politician to attend this conference. Former President Donald Trump will give the headline address with a roster of high-profile Republicans like Senator Ted Cruz, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, and Texas Governor Greg Abbott scheduled to speak. I'm living moment to moment right now. Uh, My heart, my head, and my body are in Uvalde right now. This moment eerily similar to days after the Columbine shooting, which killed 13 people in 1999. The NRA's conference that year was also scheduled shortly after and just miles away in nearby Denver. A private audio recording since obtained by NPR revealing the tense deliberation within the top brass of the NRA, whether to cancel or pare down the event. At the same period where they're going to be burying these children, we're going to be having media trying to run through the exhibit hall looking at kids fondling firearms, which is going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible juxtaposition. The conference went on as scheduled, though shortened and without the planned gun show. That decision shaping the NRA's response to mass shootings ever since, leading to this provocative moment the following year. From my cold, dead hands. All this comes as the NRA is facing a slew of other financial and legal problems. In March, the New York State Supreme Court blocked an effort to dissolve the organization, but allowed a lawsuit from the Democratic New York Attorney General to go forward. The suit accusing the NRA's leadership of violating laws governing nonprofit groups, using millions for personal use in tax fraud, alleging, quote, greed, self-dealing and lax financial oversight at the highest levels of the NRA. The NRA sticks by their claim that they always operate in the best interest of their members. 
In January 2021, the NRA filed for bankruptcy, which was dismissed last May for not having been filed in good faith. And revelations from NRA leader Wayne LaPierre that he used a friend's yacht for free as a security retreat after the Sandy Hook shootings in 2012 and the Parkland shooting in 2018. And at least three musicians who were set to perform at the NRA convention this weekend have now canceled. One of them, Don McLean, is saying it would be disrespectful and hurtful to perform. And Larry Gatlin saying he cannot in good conscience, Jake, go on to perform this hmm. weekend either. Interesting. Sunland Safadi, thanks so much. To Ukraine next, CNN goes into the trenches with Ukrainian forces relying on U.S. weapons to push back the Russians. Stay with us. In our worldly, the Biden administration is preparing to step up the kind of weaponry it's giving to Ukraine. Multiple officials say the U.S. is sending advanced long-range rocket systems that are now the top request from Ukrainian officials. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh finds a new vantage point inside the trenches with Zelensky's forces where Ukrainian soldiers have a surprisingly positive outlook. Putin would leave little of what he claims to liberate. An artillery duel has been raging for days, torching around the vital Russian-held town of Izum. Up on high, in a position we were asked not to reveal, these Ukrainian troops, dug in and buoyant, have a clear view of the damage below, but also their enemy. So the, the Russians are just a kilometre on the brow of this hill, in that direction. This unit only here two days, but say they have already destroyed a Russian tank. Yes, they play to the cameras, but it's pretty clear up here their morale is sky high. <laughs> they are exposed, but ready, keen to show off, actually gleeful at, the international menu of weapons they've been sent. Almost a silly amount. These Swedish anti-tank munitions. And of course, a British N-law. <laughs> then, from out of the grass, a German one, which they particularly like. A Polish grenade. No training on them, just practical use, they joke, giving them the widest experience of anti-tank weapons in Europe. Parading also what the Russians left thermal optics and a Soviet-era anti-tank weapon that they wind up like a telephone. Yet still, the Russians persist, even as the prisoners these troops have taken have revealed how young the soldiers they're fighting are. In the village below, the endless shelling is flushing the remaining life out. This woman said telling me her name would make no difference. Yeah, 
Одинадцять. Ось проїду туди і посчитай. Сиділа в погребі і впала на коліна. І молила Господа, щоб вложив людям у мозги добро. Видержуть мозги. А ви держують, бачите? They really don't know where they'll go or what, if anything, they can come back to. Just that life has no space left here. Now, Jake, while you see buoyant troops there on high above Izum, to the north of where I'm standing, where certainly Ukraine is holding, it seems, some positions, well, it's a very different story here in the Donbass, around Kramatorsk, a key city here, and Slavyansk, two key places so vital to the fights back in 2014, which Russia now appears, even by Ukrainian official accounts, to be seeing some success, territory being taken daily, frankly, at a pace we haven't seen really in this war, even Ukrainian officials suggesting there may be some talent in the tactical command here. A distant rumble of artillery, pretty persistent. Jake? Nick Payton Wallace reporting from the front lines, literally, in Ukraine. Thank you so much for that report. Coming up, Oklahoma's governor just signed one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the entire United States. How critics are tying that law to the shooting in Uvalde. Stay with us. Oklahoma Republican Governor Kevin Stitt signed one of the nation's strictest anti-abortion laws in bills into law. The law bans abortion after the moment of fertilization. It allows private citizens to sue to enforce the law. Some Democrats are choosing to tie this bill and others like it to recent mass shootings. Take a listen. I have to say as a pastor that I'd like to hear where some of my pro-life friends are on this issue. 19 babies died. 19 babies died yesterday. Let's discuss. Paul Begala is a Democratic strategist. What do you, what do you make of Warnock's strategy, talking about uh, anti-abortion individuals? He's suggesting they care more about babies in the womb than kids when, once they're born. Well, I, that, because of what happened in Uvalde, everybody's thinking about that, and I understand that. He is a pastor. He's ha- he, I'm sure has had to minister to families who faced gun violence. And so I, I respect that, understand it. I would extend it. I wouldn't talk just about guns or even only about, or at all about guns. Do you know Oklahoma is 40th in maternal mortality, 33rd in infant mortality? They do a terrible job of taking care of the babies that they have. Now, by the way, violent crime is up in Oklahoma under this Republican governor. Test scores are down. So I think it's fair to say, are you taking care of the children you have now already? Uh, and, and I understand guns is on everybody's mind. But I, I think things like maternal uh, mortality and infant mortality are even more relevant and, uh, to an abortion debate, frankly, than, than guns are. Well, unfortunately, of course, violent crime's up everywhere. And I think we're dealing with an increasingly national problem on that. Uh, I think that it is totally fair to ask pro-lifers, like everybody, to come up with our best ideas for how to improve safety. Um, It's going to be an argument because there's disagreement about the specific measures that people are talking about, whether they would work, what their costs would be, and so on. And we're going to have different ideas about those. But yeah. I think now at least you're having a serious sit-down uh, about, about the gun issue on Capitol Hill, which we haven't had in years and years. I don't know if it's going to amount to anything. But Joe Manchin said this feels different somehow. He did also say that in 2018. You took the words right yeah. out of my mouth. So, <laughs> Margaret, he, um, Senator Warnock uh, of Georgia is not the only one 
who's thinking about priorities in the world. I want you to take a listen right now to Golden State Warriors guard and forward uh, uh, Damian Lee, uh, who, who talked about the Uvalde shooting in, in another interesting way. Take a listen. It's sad, the world that we live in. We need, you know, to reform that. Guns shouldn't be as easily accessible. Like, it's easier to get a gun than baby formula right now. Uh, that's unbelievable. Yeah, talk a, about a soundbite, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's, it, I think it's just all part of, like, what kind of world are we in? And it's a moment for parents. This is something that uh, we've been reporting on at Axios this week. But uh, think of all the different pressures and frustrations and fears that parents have been facing one wave after the next. It's COVID, it's inflation, it's baby formula, it's shootings, right? Um, How will all of this play out as a political issue? I know we're here to talk about politics, right? We thought this was going to be a year where COVID and inflation were the driving issues. Now, two of the most polarizing issues in the American electorate, um, gun rights and abortion rights, are now going to share the stage with these two issues. And it is going to shake up the political landscape in a midterm year, but I think in the immediate future, like set it aside in the immediate future, there is a moment of theoretical potential, very fragile potential for bipartisan compromise and about a week and a half to get something done. Yeah, maybe Cornyn and Blumenthal, I think, are working on right. something right now. And there's also Murphy. some. Yeah, uh, and Murphy and uh, Lindsey Graham, is that? Yeah. I, I might be confusing the, you know, the red, team ups. It, but, but, but these are common sense things, by the way. That could have been done a while ago. 20 you know, years ago. 20 years ago. Red flag lower, uh, laws, background checks, that kind of expanding background checks. These are things they've been talking about. And suddenly, uh, 19 babies, as the senator was saying, are murdered. Mm. And it feels different as Joe Manchin says, well, it should have felt different after Parkland. It should have felt different after Newtown. And what, What's different is the radicalization of the Republican Party on the gun issue. You know, Bill Clinton signed the Brady Bill with Ronald Reagan's support, and 54 House Republicans voted for it, 17 Senate Republicans voted for it. We can't even, we can't, can you imagine 54? And by the way, Brady Bill. Explain to our viewers what the Brady Bill is. The Brady Bill was a background check law, which applies to almost all purchases, and it has kept Thousands and, and thousands. And they also banned uh, some forms of semi-automatic banned assault exactly. weapons, yeah. banned high-capacity magazines, which is critical to preventing mass. But those expired. And those bans expired. When they yeah. were enacted, when they were in law for 10 years, mass shootings went down 37%. When they were allowed to expire by the Republicans who were running things in the Bush administration, they went up 183% mass shootings. So we know that these laws can work. They can't solve everything. And I think the, the people in the Republican Party say we have to look at mental health. They're right. They talk about our culture. They're right. We're also right that, that sensible gun safety laws work. We know that. And Republicans used to support them, at least a great many of them did, dozens and dozens of them Well, of course, did. Democrats no have run away from the issue as well. I mean, you had in 2013 a Democratic Senate, a Democratic um, president, and the Senate was only able to get 40 votes for a renewed assault weapons ban because a lot of Democrats concluded that, that contrary to what uh, Paul is saying, it didn't have much of an effect, and even if it did, they were afraid of the politics of the issue. Well, so you know something I'm sure you guys are hearing from your friends in places like Scotland and Ireland and England and Australia uh, where there were mass shootings and then the government did something that is, it, that is uh, difficult to imagine ever happening here, uh, stockpiling, buying back, confiscating. Uh, banning, confiscating yeah. guns. Um, I want you to take a listen to a Sky News reporter asking Republican Senator Ted Cruz why gun violence is so bad in the United States. Take a listen. But why does this only happen in your country? I really think that's what many people around the world just 
but they cannot fathom. Why only in America? Why is this American exceptionalism so awful? You know, I'm sorry you think American exceptionalism is awful. I think I, this I think, aspect, I think, I think this I, aspect you know of it. You got your political agenda. No, it's God, honestly, God love you. Why is America the only country that you, faces this kind of you know what? mass shooting? But you, can't you can't answer that. You can't answer that, can you say? You can't answer that. Why you know, is this Why country? is it that people come from all over the world to America? Because it's the freest, most prosperous, safest country on it may earth. It may be the freest, it may be the most... Stop being a propagandist. What do you think? There are two senators in Texas, and I actually think in the moment it's the other senator from Texas, um, John Cornyn. John Cornyn. That we're, I know his name. <laughs> that we're all going to be watching in the next yeah. week or, or two. Uh, Cornyn is not going to go ahead with his plans at the NRA. Cornyn is the one who Democrats say we want to talk to him. Uh, Cornyn potentially has the ability, the bar is low, to bring together right. some kind of a combination of background check and red flag. And I do think what's different about this moment, I do think there's a difference. It happened in Texas, in Florida, where Rick Scott is the head of the uh, senatorial Republican Senatorial Committee. There already is a red right. flag law, and he is open to a federal red flag law, if not in the And, and they also Parkland. raised, and they also raised they, the age in Florida after right. Parkland after to 21. Park- it, it wasn't that long ago, remember, that Donald Trump actually had those Parkland families mm. to the White House and almost cut a deal, almost yeah. cut a deal. And then he invited the NRA in the next day. Remember that? And that, that deal came right off the Thanks table. to one and all of you. Appreciate it. Uh, sunken cars and boats reemerging as one of the key reservoirs out west hits terrifying new lows. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, a weekly update from the U.S. Drought Monitor shows drought conditions now cover 11% of California. That's up from under 1% last week. CNN's Bill Weir has the latest on all this. Bill, well, what do these drastic new drought numbers mean for California and other western states? Well, one correction. No offense, Jake, off the top. It's 11% of the entire western United States that's under drought, 60% of California. And what that means, obviously, is a long, hot, thirsty summer and beyond. Uh, they got a bunch of snow in December, and then January, February, March were the driest on record. Worst 22 years in 1,200 years, we know from studying tree rings. And also, you know, the Colorado Compact was written back in the 20s between the seven states and Mexico after one of the wettest periods ever. So this water in this basin has been overpromised from the beginning, and now it's getting to the point where the reckoning is, is coming in for tens of millions of people. I, in those deserts. I appreciate the correction. We want to be accurate. <laughs> no, I do. I'm serious. Um, there's another issue that's connected to this. The water level in Lake Mead, the nation's largest reservoir, it dropped to its lowest point ever this week. It could theoretically yes. drop another 12 feet this fall. Uh, and now water restrictions are being put into place. Exactly. This is the scariest stuff. Because last August, water officials said, worst case scenario, by, you know, this time, May of 22, Memorial Day, it'll be at 1057 feet above sea level. It's 1049 now. It could go down to 1008 by 2023. That's 41 feet below where it is now, which is the worst case scenario. So California is going to, you know, this will tear up as it gets worse. So California will now then see, you know, 5% restriction in droughts. Arizona is already seeing uh, a restriction of enough water to supply um, 1.5 million homes for a year. Uh, the people tasting that pain are farmers, alfalfa, cotton farmers, water-intensive crops in the deserts. 
But it eventually, you know, folks who have big lawns in Beverly Hills are probably going to have to start rethinking the wisdom of that in the desert. And, you know, uh, it's whiskey is for drinking, water is for fighting, is the old saying that attributed to Mark Twain. Uh, we're we're going to see how communities decide to divvy up the stuff of life, literally. And And scientists think that this is directly a result of man-made climate change, yes? Yeah, I mean, droughts come and go, but this one is on steroids as a result of, you know, we've completely changed the chemistry of the sky and the oceans. All right. Disappointing news. Depressing. Go weird. Thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you miss an episode, you can always listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.